from St. Luke's Gospel, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, good morning. We are in for a treat today because today is the final Sunday of the Epiphany, and the text which is read, the Transfiguration, which Father Greta just read a moment ago, is read every year on the last Sunday of the Epiphany, and it's also read every year uh, right about the beginning of August. And so this is read every year twice. It is the most preached on text I've ever come across, and I've got to tell you everything I know for an hour and a half. I'm going to do a totally different take on this text today because something which has been bouncing around in my spirit for a while now is this. As a pastor, something which I encounter just about every every week, and it's this. Father, what do I do? And what I mean by that is what every single person in this room has something wrong or you will soon things will someday go poorly and it's interesting to me and I want to just say this out loud because we all live it and we pretend that we don't that every single one of us puts on the front end right the happy face how you doing great how are you great that's not true (laughs) right amen I mean, we all do it. We all say it. We all want to put on the the exterior that things are just wonderful. And I'm not saying they're all bad. But the problem is we wind up living this, this sort of bifurcated life where we pretend we're one thing, but inwardly we're actually something very, very different. And I'm just saying that out loud because I want you to realize that y'all do it. I do too. And I wanted to say that because our scripture today speaks to that very thing. Father, what do I do now? Because here's the thing, life is about suffering. Life is actually about struggle. No one ever says this either. We pretend it's always great, and it's kind of sometimes hard to not think things are great in Vero Beach. It could be worse. It could be in New York City right now, where it's cold and snowy. But the, reality, the fact of the matter is, life is about suffering. At the very least, life is about struggle. And I don't mean that we're constantly miserable, but what I do mean is this, which I'm going to dial in on today, that life is a challenge. Life is a challenge. And it's not the avoidance of suffering. Listen, it is not the avoidance of suffering that makes you stronger, but what makes you stronger is suffering and growing from it. And in fact, even more than that, as Christians, the only reason we can grow from suffering is because we know that fundamentally Jesus is in control. And I think we all know that up here, at least I hope you do, but we forget it. And so today I am here to remind you that to encourage you that the struggles of our lives can only be handled with an intimate knowledge that Jesus Christ is in front of us and at the center. Amen? So... Today, I'm going to look at three points from this text from today. Because life is about suffering, but it's also about suffering that we bash through. Today, the transfiguration reminds us of three things. Who he is, why he's here, and what does it matter? The details of the transfiguration show us who Jesus is, why he is transfigured in the first place, and then finally, what does it have to do with you? How does the transfiguration answer the question, what do I do now? So first thing, 
There's some details here. Point number one, what do the details tell us about Jesus? It's pretty profound. And I want to just say one thing. Jesus, first point, takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain. Now let me just stop right there and say something kind of obvious, but maybe you never thought about it, that Jesus actually had friends. He takes Peter, James, and John. He didn't take everybody. In fact, if you read scripture, Jesus is, is literally swamped with people all day long, wanting something, wanting something, something to heal them. Crowds swarmed him. But Jesus is extremely picky and choosy about with whom, listen, he is vulnerable. He does not, is not transfigured. He does not reveal his true nature to everybody, but only to three guys, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And I think this is actually good advice for you and for me. And here's the question. Here's a question for you, a real one. Do you choose your friends wisely? If Jesus is the example for how we are to live, which he is, Jesus chose his friends very, very carefully because whom you associate with and with whom you are vulnerable will impact your life. Kathy and I have taught all three of my children this very thing. Be kind to everybody. St. Paul, Romans 12, 8. Live at peace with all people, Paul says, to the extent that you are able to. So be kind to everyone. Be charitable to everybody. But be extremely careful and choosy with whom you are vulnerable. Trust is earned. Jesus is picky when it comes to who he is going to reveal his nature to. And here's the thing I'll say to you is, before I move on, find people that you want to be like and spend time with them. Jesus was intentional and deliberate. Jesus had friends, and Jesus, like his friends, were all Jewish. You know that, right? Jesus was a Jew. Peter, James, and John, all Jewish. And that's absolutely critical because he takes his three friends up the mountain to reveal who he is, and several things occur which don't really make a lot of sense to a 21st century post-Enlightenment Western person like you, but to a first century Jew would have been absolutely profound. Point number one, Jesus takes his friends, his Jewish friends, up a high mountain. So, well, this isn't just a camping trip. Mountains, <laughs> mountains are where God reveals himself. Moses on the mount. Second detail, Jesus appears between Moses and Elijah. So, well, if you're a first century Jew, which these guys were, Moses is symbolic of the law, the Ten Commandments. Elijah is the greatest of the prophets, and Jesus is in the middle. And what Luke says is that Moses and Elijah point to Jesus. What you wouldn't know is that the law and the prophets is Old Testament shorthand, is test, shorthand for the Old Testament, meaning that with, when Christ appears with Moses and Elijah, what, he, what that symbol shows is that the entire scripture points towards him. Third thing, a cloud comes around the mountain. This is not just a cloud on a snowy day. This is a cloud of God's presence, which you see in front of the Israelites when they are in, in the Exodus. You see it in the temple when the temple is filled with smoke. And then finally, and this is really profound, the fourth detail as a first century Jewish man, which would be profound to you, is this, that when Peter and James and John wake up, 
They see his glory. Now, if you're a first century Jew, you know your Old Testament. And you know way back when Moses was on the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and after the golden calf incident, and the golden calf was smashed and all that stuff, and God, Moses sees that God has revealed himself, what does Moses say? He says, Moses, Moses says to God, God, show me your glory. And God says, Moses, man, you can't see that. That's too much for you. But you can see my back. But today, we see God, Jesus on a mountain, revealing himself face to face in an intimate and personal way. And all this is to say is my first point, and I'll move on. The details of this story, if you're a first century Jew, tell you something which, uh, which there is absolutely no doubt, that Jesus is God. And that he is a God who reveals himself personally. All those details in, the old, in that story say that Jesus is God and he reveals himself personally. That's my first point. My second point is, well, then why does he do it? Well, why does Jesus do this transfiguration in the first place? Why all this revelation? Well, it's all about context. Let me show you something. If in Matthew's gospel, we know that right before the transfiguration, Jesus says, all right, guys, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man himself is going to be betrayed and killed. And they go along, and they don't know what he's talking about, obviously, at the time. But Jesus knows the next thing they do after the transfiguration is they go to Jerusalem. And he's going to suffer and he's going to be killed. Jesus knows that. Jesus knows it, but the boys have no idea. Jesus knows, listen, Jesus knows that their world is about to implode. They're about to say, what do I do now? They think they're going to Jerusalem to reestablish the Jewish monarchy and to throw out the Romans once and for all. And as you know, when they get there, they are in for a big surprise because Jesus, far from being this conquering Messiah, is arrested, tortured, crucified, and dead. Friends, Jesus knows this is coming. And Jesus knows that they, Peter, James, and John, just like you, need to be encouraged for the struggles in your life. Jesus knows that you need something to hang on to when life gets messy. Listen, the transfiguration is there for one reason. It is an encouragement to Peter, James, and John. It will be something they can fall back upon when their world falls apart, which it will very soon. Let me ask you a question. Think about your own life. It's all about God revealing himself, the transfiguration. God showing you who he is. Think about your own life. Where has God given you those times when he was vulnerable with you? What are the times of your life where God revealed himself to you, that you were absolutely and thoroughly convinced he was there, that God was real and that he loved you and that he was present and in control? Think about those times in your life in the past when you knew he was there. It was irrefutable. Let me say this, friends. Hang on to those things. Hang on to those part, your times in your life when God revealed himself to you. Hang on to them. Think about them. Write them down. Think about those moments that God has given you, 
that God has shown you who he is because you're going to need them. You're going to need them when the bottom falls out. I'll give you an example, which I'd never thought about before until this past week. Mary, Jesus' mother. You know the story when Jesus is born. Of course, Mary is a 14-year-old, 13-year-old girl. Uh, Jesus is born of a virgin under, by many people's accounts, suspicious circumstances because she wasn't married. She has, she, she has this kid in a barn. Shepherds come out from in the fields and say, you're not going to believe what we saw. These angels singing. And all of them gather together to tell Mary all this story that's occurred. And of course, her head is spinning. What in the world is this all about? And I'm going to tell you what Luke writes in chapter 2, verse 18. That they all wondered what was going on. But Mary, listen closely, Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. See, friends, Mary, Mary was going to need that. Mary was going to need that memory. She doesn't know it yet, but she will. Mary's going to need that memory because she is going to see, 30 years later, her son arrested and beaten and falsely accused. She will stand there for three hours and watch her son die on the cross. She will stand there as his friends abandon him. She will hold his dead body at the foot of the cross. Mary's going to need it. She's going to need that memory. So friends, where, where has Jesus shown you who he is? Hang on to those. Write them down. You're going to need them. Let me give you a story about a man who used to live on the east coast of Florida in Coconut Grove. Never been there, but it's down by Miami. Every Friday night, this man would go out to the beach, and he would feed these seagulls who would flock to him, and he would take shrimp out of this bucket, and he would throw them up into the air, and the seagulls would come down and swoop them and, and fly away. And all the people that lived there thought, who is this crazy old man feeding these seagulls every Friday night without fail? What they didn't know was that many years earlier, in October 1942, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker had been on a B-17 over the South Pacific. His plane was shot, was, uh, went down, and Eddie and his crew spent days on life rafts, burning in the sun in the Pacific, fending off sharks and storms and severe dehydration. He reported that the suffering during the suffering, his crew, they awoke, and one day they prayed together. They said their daily devotions. They sang, and they prayed for God to help them. And as the days went on, Rickenbacker drift in and out, drifted in and out of consciousness, the heat and the lack of water making him delirious, as you know that occurs. And then Rickenbacker at one point awoke to feel something on his head, and he reported, he said, strangest thing is I knew it was a, it was a seagull. And he thought, if I could just catch it, if I could just catch the seagull. And so he reaches up, and he catches the gull, and he kills it. They ate the flesh, they removed the intestines, and they used it as bait for fish. And as a result, it's, it saved their lives. And now, all these years later, Eddie, Eddie Rickenbacker, who was also a World War I fighter ace, if you didn't know the name, Rickenbacker would recount how this old this seagull, which is in the middle of the Pacific, seagulls don't fly out that far, but Rickenbacker believed that God had sent that to him, 
and that God had sent that seagull to him as a sign to save him. Eddie believed that that seagull was a gift from God, that Eddie believed that that seagull demonstrated God's love for him. And so on that lonely stretch of beach in Coconut Grove, Florida, every Friday night at sunset, he would find Eddie Rickenbacker, white-haired, bushy eyebrows, slightly bent over with a bucket of shrimp for these seagulls whom God had sent to him and his men to save their lives. So what about you? Where has the Lord been so present with you that it changed you, that made you absolutely certain that he was there for you? Cherish those things, friends. You're going to need them. If your life is anything like mine, Jesus has given you all sorts of evidence, if you're willing to see it, proof of his effect on your life. You know, the apostles didn't know what to make of the transfiguration until later, and oftentimes you and I don't know what the situation is about until later on when we can stitch it all together. For me, some of the most powerful times in my own life have been when, if I look back and see the people he's placed in my life and the prayers that he did not answer, thanks be to God, all the things I prayed for that, thank you, Jesus, I did not get. (laughs) Jesus' transfiguration affects us, friends, this is my final point, because it reminds us to grab hold of the times in our lives when he was truly present and to hang on to them, because you're going to need them. Maybe it, was, maybe it was once you heard someone's reading scripture, it just jumped out at you and stuck to you. Hang on to it. Maybe it's as you kneel to receive the body and blood of Jesus this morning in the sacrament, you're just aware of his presence. Man, hang on to that. Perhaps it's in the words of a sermon that the preacher says exactly what you needed to hear at exactly the right time. That's not a coincidence. Hang on to it. Perhaps it's the words of a friend who says something offhanded that stuck to you and you knew it's exactly what you needed to hear, friends, hang on to it. Hang on to those times when Jesus has revealed himself fully to you. Hang on to them, friends, because you're going to need them. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your son who reveals himself to Peter, James, and John and was transfigured before them to show them who he is. Lord, open our eyes to see Jesus revealing himself in our own lives and teach us to hold on to these moments of encouragement when we are afflicted. In his name we pray. In his name we pray. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.